Let's take a look at God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 11 is where we're going to be at. What is your hope? What is your hope? I think this is a, an important question uh, to consider. Sometimes I think we use the word hope in the same way that we use the word wish. We interchange the two. I hope for a new car. I hope that it stops raining, which, how quickly we complain. When really what we're saying is, I wish I had a new car and I wish that the sun would come out again. This past Thursday, I had the opportunity to participate in a graveside service for Vicki's uncle who passed away last Sunday afternoon. One of the verses that we used in the service for him at the graveside was Psalm 39 verse 7 which says, which David declares, but now Lord, what do I look for? You are my hope. Hope, the biblical sense of hope goes beyond wishing or longing for something to come into reality. Hope instead is that settled conviction of who God is. Hope is our singular trust in God. And David was declaring there as he looked back over his life that in life and even in death, he was saying, I have no one but you. You are my hope. You are my confidence. You are the one that I'm waiting for. You are the one that I'm looking to. You are my trust. What is your hope? When I was in Arkansas earlier this month uh, for my week of prayer and study, one of the books that I read was Reckless Abandoned by missionary David Sitton. David uh, grew up as a partying surfer on the coast of Texas down in Corpus Christi. And during his senior year of high school, David, uh, God drew him to himself and God drew David to himself and David was gloriously saved, age 19, He's going off to Papua New Guinea with a surfboard as a missionary. I guess you have to take your priorities. And, uh, and in the introduction to his biography, David writes this, these words. I think I have them there on the screen. The gospel is so valuable that no risk is unreasonable. Do we believe this to be true? The gospel is so valuable that no risk is unreasonable. If we believe this is true, what unreasonable risks are we taking with our life? I think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where he used a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13 to describe the kingdom of God. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure, or like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went out and sold all that he had bought, all that he had, and he bought that field. I mean, you can just imagine what that day was like. You're selling what? And you're going to buy what? 
Why would you do that? It's just an empty field. You're throwing away your retirement. You're wasting your investments. You can hear the ridicule, the scorn, the mockery. The Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians, thanking them from his prison cell for the gift that the Philippians said, sent. Philippians chapter 2, verse 29, Paul writes, he says, So then, welcome him. Welcome who? Welcome Epaphroditus. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Why? Why should they welcome him and honor him? Because he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul's saying, listen, you, you sent the financial gift, which I'm grateful for. There, that material gift was much needed, but Epaphroditus, he risked his life. To the Corinthian church, Paul would write about the churches in places like Philippi, and he used these words to describe how they gave. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, begging us, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The churches in Macedonia, places like Philippi, were giving not just what they could afford, they were giving what they couldn't afford. Can any of us here today say that we're taking these kinds of risks for the gospel and for the kingdom of God? Is Jesus Christ and is the gospel so valuable that no risk is unreasonable? Today as we finish up our summer Bible study looking at the songs of the redeemed, I want us to consider the hope of the redeemed found in a song in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11. Now, as we're working through this summer series and Pastor Drew looked and said, man, so there's a lot of songs in the book of Revelation that you could pick from, right? There are, but there's a special reason why I want to pick this one. And so we're going to take a look at uh, Psalm, uh, or Revelation chapter 11, rather. You think about where we've been so far this summer. We started back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 15 with the song of Moses. Remember that? Other side of the Red, other side of the Red Sea. The horse and rider, um, he, uh, <laughs> I will sing unto the Lord for the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. See, I don't even know the song. So, but anyways, after their deliverance from the Red Sea, right, they, they sang a song giving glory to God because he had triumphed gloriously over Pharaoh's army. Again, Moses at the end of his life Deuteronomy chapter 32 praised God in song for being a rock and there he being no other. We heard Hannah's cry of prayer and distress from the bitterness of soul, from the barrenness of her womb. And then we heard her praising God 
for being a God like no other because in the son that God had given to her, through him he would anoint the one from which the Messiah would come. David, at the end of his life, declared that the Lord is a rock and a refuge, a shelter and a shield. Jonah prayed from the belly of a fish, declaring that, that um, God is, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Not only his salvation, but the salvation of wicked, rebellious people like the Ninevites, and even to today, people like you and I. We heard the prayer of the early church when they faced persecution intimidation, oppression, and opposition. And that prayer was answered. And the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they spoke in boldness and people believed and many praised the Lord. We saw last Sunday the hymn of the early church in which Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient upon the, even unto death, is now today exalted at the right hand of God. And he himself has been given a name that is above every name. And today, Revelation chapter 11, we're going to be transported to the end of time. And we're going to hear the voices in heaven singing praise, declaring the hope of the redeemed in song. I hope you have your place in scripture. Revelation chapter 11, let's read verses 15 to 19, the end of the chapter. And we'll consider what the Lord has to say to us today. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. Which said. The kingdom. The kingdom of this world. Has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within this temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. And so let's consider here this morning what the hope of the redeemed is. The hope, the certain and sure trust and confidence of the redeemed is expressed for us in four ways. Number one, the hope of the redeemed is that God will reign in great power over all forever and ever. We see this in verses 15 and 17 where the hope of the redeemed rests on the assurance that God reigns. Do you hear, see in verse 15, those voices in heaven roaring, the angelic beings, the redeemed from the Old Testament, the New Testament, all gathered there before the throne of God, and in united voice they declare, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign. 
the word there is used for that of the rule of a king. The voices of heaven were shouting and declaring, are shouting and declaring that King Jesus shall reign forever and ever. Verse 17, the 24 elders, I believe the 24 elders are representative of the saints of the Old Testament, the saints of the New Testament, and so we have both the Old and the New Testament believers bowing before the, the God on who is seated on his throne, and they're worshiping him, and they're saying, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The verb tense there of begun to reign is not the idea, not the idea that right now God is not reigning, but at some point in the future, God will begin to reign. That's not the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb is this. It speaks of the permanence of God's reign. That God is reigning and will always reign. And so when the, the their voices are declaring, you have begun. They're saying this, that right now, although God is reigning, his reign is not always visible, not always seen, because there's opposition to God's reign. But there's a day coming when all those who are in opposition to God will be vanquished. And God's reign will be unopposed. Un, uh, unseen today, visible forever to be seen and the bible says that he will reign what does it say he will reign with great power look again at verse 17 we give thanks to you lord god almighty describes his sovereign irresistible omnipotent power and you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign literally there were that that the adjective there in front of power, we get our English word mega. Mega millions, mega power. God's power is, God's power is great and is over all. He will reign over all. I think this is the meta narrative of Scripture. He said, what is the singular overarching message of Scripture? It is this, that God reigns. This is the hope of the redeemed. That there is a Lord God Almighty who rules and reigns. He has always ruled and reigned, always will rule and reign. Now think about Job in the Old Testament. The suffering of the innocent falls under the sovereign rule and reign of God. You think the history and the story of the scripture, that the history and the story, or not the history and the story of scripture, the history and the story of the world as recorded on the pages of scripture is that of mankind, demonic forces seeking to subvert and overthrow the rule and the reign of God. Just follow the storyline of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent tempted the woman in the garden with the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. God knows that in the day in which you eat the fruit of the tree, you'll be like him. And what does the Bible say? Seeing that the fruit would make her wise, and it was delightful to the eyes, she took, ate, and gave to her husband. 
Genesis chapter 4, after killing Abel, and because his, uh, or, yeah, Cain, after killing Abel, because his offering was accepted by God, Abel's offering was accepted by God, and Cain's was rejected, Cain was questioned by God, and he responded with this hostility and this arrogance, am I my brother's keeper? Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah. The world had become so filled with wickedness that the Lord repented of having made mankind. Genesis chapter 11, man said, let's build a tower so that the world will never be destroyed again. And we haven't even begun to get to Abraham yet. The history of mankind is one of seeking to overthrow and subvert the rule, the reign of God. John MacArthur in his commentary in Revelation chapter 11, writing about the kingdom of the world, where it says um, in verse 15, the kingdom of this world, uh, of the world, kingdom singular, MacArthur writes, all of the world's diverse national, political, social, cultural, linguistic, and religious groups are in reality one kingdom under one king. The king is known in scripture by many names and titles, including the accuser, the adversary, Beelzebul, Belial, the dragon, the evil one, the god of the world, the prince and the power of the air, the roaring lion, the ruler of demons, the ruler of the world, the serpent of old, the tempter, most commonly devil and the devil and Satan. Though God scattered this kingdom at the Tower of Babel, Satan still rules over the pieces of the once united kingdom. Think about the hope that we have who have been redeemed by God. God rules over all. Just think of the last century. The evil dictators that have sought to establish an everlasting rule. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein. All of these brutal, cruel dictators today are dead and gone, and yet God reigns. God reigns over all forever and ever. Think of the lyrics of Handel's Messiah. I don't know if Handel used this scripture <clears throat> as the basis for his, the composition of his of his song, but listen, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, hallelujah. We need to remember this. Our God reigns forever and ever. Sometimes in my own life, and other times in what I've witnessed in the lives of God people, God's people is that we can become weary in the battle. We become fatigued. Our faith begins to waver. We forget. We cry out with the saints of old, how long, oh Lord, how long? And the hope of the redeemed, the song of the redeemed and revelation that comes to us for us at the end of time is that we're reminded that no matter how bleak or how frustrating 
the circumstances may be, what is today will not always be. I think of Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith. The chapter ends with a list of unnamed people. The Bible says, did not receive what they had hoped for, and yet they persevered. Why? Because in part they believed the song of the redeemed, that God reigns. So you say, if God reigns, what does if God reigns, what does that mean? Well, consider number two, that the hope of the redeemed is what? Not only that God reigns forever and ever over all with great power, but that God will raise the dead in judgment. Look again at verse 18. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. And here we're reminded, we're taught again in Scripture, that the, the hope of the redeemed does not rest in this life alone. The hope of the redeemed is that there is a day coming when the trumpet of God will sound and the dead will be raised. And this is not just a New Testament reality. This is the hope of all of the redeemed. Even in the Old Testament, Daniel, while he was living in Babylon in exile, away from the land of Israel, he saw and believed the day that is yet to come in which the dead will be raised. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Daniel wrote these words. He says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now think about that. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then this life is all that there is. The Apostle Paul drew out this conclusion of what life without the hope of the resurrection from the dead means. He says if there is no resurrection from the dead, then you may as well eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow you die. Make the best of today because this is all that you have. But that's not ultimate reality. The hope of the redeemed rests on God raising the dead in judgment. And when we think about this reality, the reality of judgment, this is what gives you and I urgency to what we do with our lives. If there is a resurrection from the dead for judgment, there is no escape from standing before God. This is what the Apostle Paul preached when he was in Athens on Mars Hill, when he saw that altar to the unknown God. There in Athens, Paul gave the conclusion God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the hope of the redeemed rests on the fact that because Christ Jesus 
not only died but was raised to life, he too will be coming in resurrection power to bring judgment. And you say, why should this matter? Why should I care that there's a resurrection from the dead? Why can't I just go on and live my life as if that doesn't matter? Number three, the hope of the redeemed is that he, God, will reward those who serve him. Look again at verse 18. The time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. The time will come for giving what is due to your servants. Who are the servants? The prophets, your people. Your translation might say the prophets and the saints. Those who fear your name, both great and small. It doesn't matter if you're like someone like Billy Graham or you're a hidden saint believing in the Lord Jesus and faithfully serving him and while suffering and experiencing persecution in a tiny remote village in a hidden place of the world, the Lord knows and the Lord rewards his servants. He gives what is due. Do we believe that the Lord rewards his servants? Does that make a difference in how we approach life? I think of the profound disappointment I had when I was in elementary school. And even as I think about this, I I struggle with sharing the story. I, I wasn't the best student in school. I was pretty much a troublemaker and The principal and I were, he knew me well. (laughs) And I didn't do well in language arts and I I didn't do well rather in spelling. I I struggled with spelling and I hated spelling words. You guys remember those spelling words? And parents, my parents made me write them out, like write out each word like 10 times. You guys have to do that? No, you guys didn't? Some of you did, yeah. And um, and so my parents worked out an arrangement with me. I wanted a 10-speed bicycle. Remember those 10-speed bicycles that had the handles that kind of like looped around like ram's horns? And I wanted a 10-speed bicycle. And so here was the arrangement. The arrangement was if I got to the end of whatever grade I was in and I got an A in spelling, I would... I would get a 10-speed bicycle. That would be my reward. And so, man, I studied diligently. Man, I was motivated to write out my spelling words and learn the words. And then report card came and opened it up. And it just said spelling with no grade. And one of my teachers said, man, what, what grade did I get in spelling? He goes, it's part of your language arts grade. I said, well, what grade did I get in spelling? He says, it's part of your, it's probably because I was such a terror all year long that he, he was not going to give me an answer. 
I went home. Dad, I, I, it's part of my grade. Well, my language arts grade wasn't an A, so it's like, well, you didn't, you didn't get the bike. But my dad worked out a deal, right? If I painted the fence, <laughs> I could get this 10-speed bicycle, right? So I painted the fence, and I slopped the paint everywhere. And so it came time to get, he said, well, you just slop the paint anywhere, so let's work out a deal. No, he didn't do that. I got a bicycle, right? But I worked hard. I studied. I didn't get the grade. Had to work out a second deal to get the bike that I wanted. And I wonder if sometimes maybe some of us may have similar perspectives towards God. Yeah, I'll do all that for God, but I don't know if he'll come through. Everybody says that, but how do I know? The song of the redeemed. The time has come for the rewarding of your servants. There will be a day when God will give what is due to the great, to the Billy Grahams of this world, to the small, to the unknown names hidden away in a remote village, faithfully loving the Lord, serving Him, enduring under all kinds of persecution to all those who fear His name. You say, what kind of reward is God going to give? Man, I, we don't have time today to look at these, but if you look, you guys want some assi- want homework this afternoon? <laughs> nah, now nah, we're going to pass. I'm just telling you, if you take the homework, there's a reward, and it won't be a 10-speed bicycle. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus gives three parables to describe what is awaiting those who, are, who faithfully serve him and follow him in this world. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward. The gospel is so valuable, no risk is unreasonable because the reward is incalculable. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing, That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor, your service to the king is not nothing. It's not meaningless. It's not unnoticed. Well, man, I I tried serving before and that church didn't even know that I served. And the preacher didn't care and and other people didn't notice. The deacons weren't there. and I'm not going to serve. King Jesus knows. Your pastor might miss it. People in your Sunday school class might not even know. Nobody might ever say a word. King Jesus knows. The hope of the redeemed. 
God reigns forever over all with great power. God reigns in resurrection power. God reigns by rewarding those who serve him. God reigns, finally, number four, by removing those who defy him. God reigns, or the hope of the redeemed, rather, is that God will remove those who defy him. Again, look at the end of verse 18. The time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. Right? Now let me just say this here. This is not a political statement supporting the agenda of those who want to protect the environment. All right? Let me just say that. You see, it's right there in the Bible. God's going to destroy all the people who don't care about... About the environment. That's not what the Bible's saying here. There is a place for stewardship, responsible stewardship, but here when the Bible says, God, the time has come for destroying the destroyers, two different words, or two, the same word is used with two different meanings. Right? We you use that sometimes, right? Um, think of the word bark. The sound that a dog makes and the outer layer of a tree, right? Bark. The context helps us understand to know which meaning is used by the same word. The first use of the word destroy, it means to, to, be, to be devoted to destruction, to destroy completely. To, there, there's no coming back from this destruction. We think of, you know, in a few weeks we're going to have the anniversary for September the 11th, right? You think back to that horrific day when we sat in front of our televisions, tears running down our streams as we saw the destruction, the complete destruction of those towers in New York City. There was no coming back from that. The time has come to devote to destruction who, what, the destroyers of the earth. Same word. Devote to destruction those who by their perversion, who by their pollution of sin, are destroying the earth. There's a day coming when the God who will take his great power and begin to reign will remove all those who defy him. You say, well, how is this the hope of the redeemed, Kevin? How how is this going to help us? You ever watch Fox News? Man, sometimes I watch Fox News and I become anxious and agitated about the state of affairs. I mean, thank God for Fox News, right? Because if Fox News wasn't there, then like we wouldn't see the other half. But sometimes I find myself even watching Fox News and I find myself fretting. Like yesterday, I was watching, yesterday for a few minutes, I was watching the business channel of Fox and, 
they're talking about water shortage and how the water shortage is going to affect electricity production and how electricity, and it's just like, oh man, it's just like, we started here with empty lakes and now we've got no groceries on the food stand. And so I, I can't watch this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, you know, freaking out. Or you watch the news and you and you see what, man, you just, and you just, the corruption that's in, in high places and, and you think, man, everybody's getting away with murder. And there's no justice for the people at the top. And you start fretting about what might be. You know, what kind of country are our grandchildren, our children and grandchildren going to grow up in? What's this future going to hold? I think of the words that King David wrote in Psalm chapter 37. King David, at the end of his life, he's an old man now. And he's looking back and he's giving instruction to those who would come after him. In Psalm chapter 37, verses 7 through 9, David says, David writes, Be still. This is his instruction. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath, for fret not. It, it tends only to evil. Do you hear that? I become so anxious that it's not going to produce good, it's going to produce evil. Here's the hope. For the evildoers shall be what? Cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He will destroy the destroyers of the earth. The hope of the redeemed. I asked you at the start of the message, you know, what is your hope? I want to end with two questions. Verse 15 takes us forward in time to that day when all these loud voices will be Declaring in heaven with one voice, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the, our Lord and his Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so here's my question. Will your voice be heard among the voices of the redeemed on that day? I hope so, Pastor. I'm trying real hard. I want to be a good person. You know, I believe in God. The hope of the redeemed. You think of the word redeemed, right? To be bought back by God. To be bought back by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your sin, my sin has separated us from God. And today, without that, when we think of the song that we sang right before the message, my, my sin is forgiven. My future is heaven. It's only by Jesus Christ and what he has done. But it's not enough to know intellectually, not enough to read the Bible and read the words and think, okay, that's it. You and I must repent of our sin and we must put our faith, our complete trust, our hope, our confidence, our singular trust in Jesus Christ. Is that true of you today? 
Have you been redeemed? Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ? If you have not, your voice will not be heard on that day. Instead, you will be among those who will have been destroyed for destroying the earth. That's the reality. Today, will you believe? Will you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe Him? Second question. The first question was, will your voice be heard among the voices on that day? Second question. Whose voices will be heard on that day because of your voice today? That's the statement of David Stitton. The gospel is so valuable. No risk is unreasonable. Do we believe that? What risks will we take with our life so that people who have yet to be redeemed might have the opportunity to be redeemed. For David, 19-year-old kid, he was off to Papua New Guinea to work with the unreached peoples, the cannibals. Are we willing to talk to our neighbor? Are we willing to speak to our coworker? Are we willing to pray? What risk, what risk are we taking for the sake of the gospel with our lives? The gospel is so valuable. Jesus is so precious.